John 5. Today we wrap up John 5. Let's turn there. Kind of an odd transition point at verse 30. It could go with that which precedes it or that which follows it. And we'll get to that in a moment, I guess. But uh, from verse 30, hear the word of our God. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. That's a lot. So we better pray. Father, we thank you again for the scriptures. And as we open them this morning, remind us that this is not just an intellectual exercise, though we are to use our minds. This is about life and death. Not only should we seek to understand the scriptures, but life is to be found in believing the scriptures. Grant us both understanding and faith through the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to ask you who shot Martin Luther King Jr., you would probably reply to me, James Earl Ray. Well, in 1993, a man by the name of Lloyd Jowers said that he had paid a man by the name of Frank Holt, who was a produce packer 
at a local uh, plant to shoot Martin Luther King Jr. for him. This got a little bit of attention in 1993, and I was at the epicenter of the attention because Frank Holt was one of the men who stayed at the Orlando Union Rescue Mission where I worked. And so it was bizarre to show up for work that day and uh, shortly after I was there, you know, the Secret Service descend upon this place because they're looking for Frank Holt because they're afraid that this old man would be killed by someone who, was, who believed what Lloyd Jowers had said. And of course, it's not just the Secret Service. The press found out about it, and so they descended like flies upon the Orlando Union Rescue Mission. And they asked for an interview. And being the young fool that I was, I went out there. <laughs> and you know, I ended up doing what everyone does when it seems that there's someone accused of murder. I said, and I think this is a literal quote, Frank comes in, buys his candy bars, and keeps to himself. He's a quiet, gentle man. That's what they always say about murderers, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, Frank, of course, says that he did not do what he was accused of doing. But you had two men whose word differed. Which one should we believe? When it comes to who Jesus is, we have differing opinions. There's a professor at Duke by the name of Bart Ehrman who thinks that the divinity of Jesus is something that the church made up. He used to be a Christian. Now he's not. And now he seeks to destroy the church. We have Jesus testifying about his own divinity before the Jewish leaders who disagree with him. They're, remember from this larger context here in chapter 5, they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath and of blasphemy. Who do we believe? Bart and the Jewish leaders or Jesus? That's why it's so, much, it's so important for there to be the testimony of others who have knowledge of the facts. And that's what this text is about. Jesus is, is going to stop talking about himself so much, but saying, who else bears witness to who he is? Because he is, in a sense, at trial by the elders at the city gate. The big idea this morning is that Jesus invites us to consider testimony on his behalf. And the first thing that I want us to think about or do in light of this text is to make judgments that are based on the Father's testimony, not our own. Jesus repeats from verse 19 this phrase that I can do nothing on my own, repeating again his dependence upon the Father. It is, in a sense, serves as bookends to this whole section that, goes, that, that was going on there. That Jesus testified about his relationship with the Father and the dynamics that were at play in his relationship with the Father. And this is very important for us to understand the Trinity and Jesus and his mission on earth and how he submits to him in terms of Jesus and the incarnate word. But he's also moving on. He's wrapping this, this notion of his own testimony up, and he's going to shift for us to the testimony of others about himself. 
But before he does that, he wants us to know, uh, he wants them to know, and us by extension, that my judgment is just or it's righteous. There will be no mistakes. There will be no factual errors at play. There will be no procedural errors that mean that the guilty go free or perhaps that the innocent are imprisoned. His judgments will be just. They will be righteous. They will be perfect. They will be true. He says that this is going to be so precisely because he listens to the Father. I hear and I judge. He doesn't add to or take away from what the Father speaks to him. Why does he listen? Why does he hear? He says, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is seeking the will of the Father and all that he does, including the judgment of men of which he spoke previously in this text. He's seeking to perfectly fulfill God's will and purpose. This week, the boys were having a hard time going to bed. I had not yet put the girls to bed, and so being tired as an old father, I said to one of the girls, who shall remain nameless at this moment, go tell your brothers, Dad says, to quiet down. So she scampers off, she opens the door, and I hear this. Daddy says to quiet down, or you'll get a spanking. (laughs) She was not fully communicating the will, okay, the expressed will (laughs) of her father, okay? Jesus was following the full expressed will of his father. Yes, amen, indeed. The Jews, well, I mean, why is this pertinent? Why, why would Jesus say this? Remember, Jesus is in a sense, he's on trial right now. The Jewish leaders are about to make a judgment about him. They should listen too. They should make sure that it is not about their own will, but it is about the will of him who sent Jesus, which is one of the themes that runs not just through this whole gospel, but this passage in particular as well. They're going to make a judgment on Jesus, but they're probably going to make it according to their own desires. John Frame, in his book, Apologetics to the Glory of God, talks about um, the, the driving force of atheism. And he talks about it as the flight of accountability before God. When people are discounting the word of God, what's really operating in their hearts is that they fear being held accountable for who they are and what they have done by God. And so therefore, let's sort of erase God from the equation. And there's a sense in which these men, though they claim to believe in God, are running from the authority of Jesus. 
The evidence is going to be plain for them to see, but they don't want to accept it. They're going to make a judgment based upon their own will and desire and not upon the will and desire of the one who sent his son into the world to save the world. But before we're too hard on them, let us remember that we too are prone to make judgments based on what we want. If you're a sports fan, you know this. You watch your team, and there's a controversial play. And what's your immediate response? The call should go for your team. It's according to your desire. And then what happens is they show you the slow-mo replay. And some people sometimes stubbornly stick with their erroneous viewpoint on a call. Because sometimes the, re the replay reveals how wrong they were, but they don't care because they don't want their team to lose. They're not interested in truth. We've seen this in our own country as, as we've been torn apart. The Rodney King trial. Tore us apart based on our desire. The OJ trial divided the nation based on people's desires and prejudices. There were people who didn't want OJ to be guilty. So we see that we're stuck sometimes just like these Jewish leaders are. Let's be patient with them. Jesus wants us to be free from our own prejudices by listening to the Father. The third thing, that's the third thing. Boy, I'm done. Second thing, listen to the authoritative testimony on Jesus' behalf. This is the main part of what he's, we're going to talk about this morning. Jesus says this strange thing. Um, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, you could misunderstand that in a heartbeat, okay? And some people could jump on that, my testimony is not true. What Jesus is saying is, if I'm the only one who testifies about myself, don't listen to me. Okay? So if the only two people who are testifying, perhaps in the, the Frank Holt MLK case, are Frank Holt and this guy Lloyd, who do you believe? Whose testimony do you believe? The man who's claiming, I paid a man to do it? Or the man who says, I didn't do that. I barely know the man. How do you know? These are death sentence crimes that Jesus is accused of. Remember the man who was found to be gathering sticks on the Sabbath in the Old Testament? Stoned. Death sentence. Sin. Okay? Blasphemy against God. Death sentence, sin. And so these are not trivial matters that are before these men. They're considering something that, will, that could determine the fate of a man. Witnesses are necessary to corroborate. This is why in the Old Testament it talks about you, you don't put a man to death except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Presumably, the two or three witnesses would not be in cahoots with one another and you know, working together to get an innocent man found guilty. 
by bearing false witness against him. There was a search committee four years ago. They didn't just listen to me, right, Karen? Didn't listen just, just to me. They verified, are, are these people who we are calling and talking to about Steve, are, are they saying the same things about Steve that Steve is saying about Steve? Corroborating witnesses. And I, and I hope those people said some negative things about me, just because I know I'm not perfect. I have faults as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a man. The other person that he mentions in verse 32, that there's another person who testifies, that, that's kind of unclear. The NASB interprets it to be the father. You can notice because they have, he is in capital, the capital H. Uh, many interpret this, uh, follow the, the leanings of the NASB and believe that he's speaking at that point of the father. But R.C. Sproul and I, and it's not just because I worked for him, agree that it's most likely John the baptizer. Who he talks about in the very next sentence. And he reminds them that you guys already sent people to go out to talk to John the baptizer when his ministry was at its height, and they examined him, and he spoke the truth. That's a witness. Because he didn't just speak about himself, where he said, I am not the Messiah, I am not the prophet, I am not... He also said, there is one who is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to remove because he was before me. He testified truly about Jesus who was sent of the Father. John 1 declares that John the baptizer came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Jesus says an amazing thing, in a sense, here in chapter 5, where he says that John was a burning and shining lamp for the Messiah. In a sense, what he's saying is that Psalm 132 is true. It's been fulfilled. Verse 17, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, or Messiah. John is the lamp. Jesus is the Messiah. And the the Jewish people, for a time, or temporarily, received him. They basked in the light, so to speak. That's the first witness. But that's not the only witness. The second witness is the works that the Father has given Jesus to accomplish. He has already, as he says, begun to do those things. They probably didn't know about the miracle in Cana, but the whole reason why they're having this discussion is the healing of the paralytic, the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. That has prompted this whole controversy. So he says, that was a work the Father gave me to do. And that's not the only one. Jesus is going to, in the rest of this gospel, perform a number of miracles that point to who he is, that testify to the truthfulness that the Father has sent him, that he has come from heaven, and that he is God and man. And it's going to culminate in his death and his resurrection. These things 
testify to the reality of who Jesus is. They and we cannot disregard the healing that was reported, but have to take it into account. There's a third witness that Jesus talks about, and that is the Father himself. He says the Father himself is born witness, and then there's just rather cryptic sort of stuff about how they didn't see, sorry, hear his voice or see his form. Is he talking about the baptism? Is he talking about that moment when John the Baptist, uh, upon baptizing Jesus, heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And he saw the Spirit in the form of a dove coming down and resting upon Jesus. Is that what he's talking about? Not exactly sure. But I think he's also reminding them about the life of Israel. Back. Exodus 20. They've just received the Ten Commandments, which God spoke to them the first time. And you see this, verse 18 and 19. They stood far off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. As a nation, they basically said, We're afraid of God in a bad way, not a good way. Don't let them speak to us. Let there always be someone who stands in between. Jesus, in a sense, is, I think, reminding them of this. Moses, Exodus 33 and 34, you know, a little bit later on, hears the voice of God as he declares his name before him, but also sees God from behind as he passes by. A gift, so to speak. And so, in a sense, there's, a, there's an allusion to the greatness of Moses in this. But we'll see that Jesus is greater than Moses in a few moments. The Father also testified to Jesus in the Scriptures. Jesus calls them His Word about Jesus. But back to Moses. He mentions that Moses wrote of me. And so Moses is another witness for the defense. His writings testify. We've got to get one of them things, those wind guards. His writings testify about Christ. And so this is one of those places where we should go, now wait a minute, what is this saying? The Father, he says about the Father, it's his word, and yet he says, Moses wrote these things about me. The dual authorship of Scripture. Because the thing, part of what is his word, the Father's word, is what Moses wrote. Okay. Moses didn't write him alone. God was there. God was working in a way that we cannot imagine, or that we can't really quantify. It was not dictation, but God worked through the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way as that Moses wrote exactly what God wanted him to write and wrote about Jesus just as the Father wanted him to write about Jesus. In fact, in Luke 24, 
on the road to Emmaus. After the resurrection, we see Jesus coming along these men who were, who were talking about all the events about the death of Jesus and the rumors about his resurrection. And they don't realize who's with them until he begins to open the scriptures. And it says, where is it? I don't have it. I thought I stuck it in there. There it is. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them uh, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of scripture, according to Jesus, points to Jesus. We need to have ears to hear and eyes to see what's going on. Now Jesus makes something of a positive statement to them. You search the scriptures. He applauds them, in a sense, for searching the Scriptures. In other words, they thoroughly examined the Scriptures. And Jesus says they do this because they think that in them they have life. Now, this might sound good at the first glance, but it's not. Because they're basing it all on works and not faith. The words of Rabbi Hillel are found in... It's a funky word. The Perke Abath, Ethics of the Fathers, chapter 2, paragraph 7. Rather interesting, actually. Hear what Rabbi Hillel says. He would, say, he would also say, One who increases flesh increases worms. One who increases possessions increases worry. Hey, he's right there. The more you have, the more you worry. The one who increases wives increases witchcraft. I have no idea what the connection is between wives and witchcraft. The one who increases maidservants increases promiscuity. The one who increases manservants increases thievery. Apparently he was watching Downton Abbey. Um, one who increases Torah, or the law, increases life. One who increases study increases wisdom. One who increases counsel increases understanding. One who increases charity increases peace. One who acquires a good name acquired it for himself. One who acquires the words of Torah has acquired life in the world to come. And so there's a sense in Second Temple Judaism that these people practiced that to have Torah was to have life itself. To Search that would, you, would in and of itself gain you life in which Jesus is saying, you're looking really hard, but you don't have it. Because all of it points to me, and you're not listening to me. Stern words. Reading Scripture alone does not give us life, but we must believe in the Jesus that it points to. And He gives us life, is what He's saying. And so we should be like the Bereans of Acts 17. We should not just take people's word for it. Don't take my word for anything. Search the Scriptures. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. And so they didn't just take what Paul said for face value and either accepted it or rejected it based on that. They searched the Scriptures to see if what He said was in accordance to the Scriptures. And so should you. And look for Jesus in the Scriptures. And the ways in which it points to Him 
the ways in which it foretells about him, the ways in which it anticipates him. See that it's there. And so Jesus points us to the scriptures so that we might discover what John, the Father, Moses, and the prophets say about him. Third thing, believe in Christ like your life depends on it. I want to remind you of what Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 24. And I've brought this up a few times as we've gone through this section. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people or knew what was in all people. Jesus had knowledge of the heart of men. And he's speaking in light of that knowledge to these particular men he's standing before. Jesus' goal is not just getting off from the charges of blasphemy and breaking the Sabbath. He says in verse 34, I say these things so you may be saved. That says something important. It means they were lost. But if you ask them, they wouldn't think so. If you would ask them, are you saved? They'd probably go, yeah. But of course, I have the Torah, you fool. The Orlando Sentinel in 1997 published the results of a poll. And the results of this poll were that, in, that nearly 9 in 10 people cheered for the Red Sox. No, that's not true. Thought they were going to heaven. Nearly 90% of Americans in 1997 thought they were going to heaven. And it wasn't because they had entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of self-deception is amazing. These people thought they were okay with God based on what they did just like those 9 out of 10 in America. I'm sure they were angered when Jesus said that you might be saved. Who are you talking about? Of course I am. They searched the scriptures, as I said, but Jesus says they do not have his word abiding in them. What does that mean? They read it, but they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that which it said, and it's evidenced by the fact that they did not believe him. They refused to come to Christ to believe in him that they might have life. In Zechariah 7, we heard, if you were paying attention, that their hearts became diamond hard. That's what he's talking about here. Their hearts are diamond hard to the truth, and the truth does not penetrate them. It's a hard word that Jesus is saying. And he's about to drop another hard word on them. You do not have the love of God within you. Wow. 
Jesus can say this because he knows what's in all people. The root of their unbelief was that they didn't love God. Jesus continues. This is a hard section. He says, you don't believe me, even though I'm not seeking my own glory. But if someone comes to you who is seeking their own glory, you're, you're welcome to re you receive him with open arms. The Jewish historian Josephus notes there were numerous false messiahs who would come, and they all gathered a following. These people embraced all kinds of liars and cheats and rejected the one who was true and authentic. Because their hearts were diamond hard. They accused Jesus. But eventually, we're going to see the tables are turned, but Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to accuse you before the Father. He says, I'm not going to accuse you before the Father. Do you know who's going to accuse you before the Father? Moses. The one you say you set your hope on. He's going to accuse you because you did not believe what he said. This week, providentially, because God determines all things, Listening to a little bit of Eric Clapton, the legendary guitarist and singer, and one of the songs that I listened to was, Before You Accuse Me, You Better Look at Yourself. And that's essentially what Jesus is telling these Jewish leaders. Before you accuse me, look at yourself. But even more, look at the Word, so that you may, you may make a right judgment, not a false judgment. A judgment that will lead to your having life because you believe in me, not the selfish judgment to save face. So, if that television crew showed up again, wanted to ask me about Frank Holt, they shouldn't take my word for it that Frank Holt didn't shoot Martin Luther King Jr. I have no idea. Nor should they listen to the conspiracy theorists who say he did. Um, there are plenty of those. Should they believe Frank or should they believe Lloyd Jowers? Not sure. Frank did take a polygraph. Passed it. But I don't think we'll ever know the truth about that one until Jesus returns. There are many today, as I mentioned, who, like the Jews, deny the testimony of Jesus about himself. Jesus says that his testimony does not stand alone. It stands with the testimony of John the baptizer. It stands with the testimony of his miracles, including his death and resurrection. It stands with the testimony of the Father who sent him in Scripture. It stands with what Moses has written in Scripture. And so those who receive this testimony, they will have life, but those who don't will not but they will stand before Jesus on that last day. Moses will accuse them, and they will justly be condemned by Jesus. Now, that's hard news to say to somebody, but Jesus says it, and sometimes we have to say it too. We can't 
just be all peace, peace, joy, joy. Sometimes we have to speak the hard truths to people we love. Let's pray. Father, not an easy passage for us to reckon with. But I ask that you would uh, be at work in us, that we would increasingly believe the testimony of these witnesses for Christ, for who he is, for what he has done, and that he is indeed the Savior. That even those of us who already know he's the Savior, we would grow in our understanding of this. Grow in our trust. Grow in our capacity to communicate with others. Father, we pray for those that we know and love and care about who have thus far rejected the testimony of Jesus, that you would change their hearts, that you would remove that heart of stone, that diamond hard heart, and give them a heart of flesh that responds in faith to Jesus. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.